Hello, everybody. See all my friends, my wonderful friends. Hey, Mariana from Europe. I love my European friends. Must be like midnight over there. I especially extend a warm invitation to my European friends. I, I only have two. <laughs> one here, my dear friend, Mariana. And then the other one may not be my friend anymore because I don't see him anymore. <laughs> Just being goofy, welcome everybody. Um, uh, we have been, this is, if you're, if you're new to this, this is our, I don't know what number we are in. Um, so it says 59. 59, oh my gosh. Um, social gathering thing that we started with COVID that has turned now into this, I think, you know, quite, at least I enjoy it, um, Q&A. So it's just, this is the opportunity to bring up questions. A, a lot of really good ones were submitted. Always helpful to be there if you if you wrote one in or to raise your hand because then we can have some exchange. And so often what I'll do is I, I may say one or two just kind of comments about what I may be thinking or writing because I usually after these things after doing a whole morning of research and writing. That's how I spend my days. I get up really early. I do my morning meditation. I take my dog for a walk. I kick my cat. <laughs> I have to work on my equanimity there, right? <laughs> just kidding. Um, and then I come back and I do my writing and research and I do that, you know, four or five hours, depending on how long my brain operates. And so, um, sometimes I read what I was working on in the morning or, or share some of what I've been thinking about, like research wise. And so I wanted to just say one or two things about what I've been thinking about that, that is really big on my mind. It has been for many years and I'm focusing more on it because it, it's just so central to my whole path. And philosophically, this is talked about is the transition from materialism to idealism. And so we live, whether we know it or not, this is the default philosophical view in the West is we are raised in the cult of materialism, scientific materialism, physicalism, mostly because the, you know, the high priests of science are the arbiters of truth these days. And so they profess most, not all, most profess materialistic world that everything can be reduced, you know, you go all the way down the pecking order from psychology to biology to chemistry to physics to who knows what. But it's just, you know, it uses the power of reductionism, which itself is not a problem. Um, but the end result is a problem, thinking that everything arises from <laughs> what my dear friend, I love this phrase from Ken Wilber, calls frisky dirt. Isn't it fantastic? Mind, consciousness, love, passion, all the human emotions and whatnot you know, can be reduced to frisky dirt. It's like, really? I don't think so. Um, and so, you know, the, the great contemplative traditions, most of the non-dual traditions, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, for sure, Shaiva Tantra, um, every, every non-dual tradition I've experienced, whether they say it overtly or not, um, most of them really, they're idealistic. So idealism in philosophical language professes that the world is made of mind. It's of the nature of mind. This is a colossal topic in Buddhism, um, way beyond the scope of what we can talk about here, you know. But just briefly, you know, there's massive transformation from a world of made of matter to one way of made of mind. In the, in the provisional stages in Buddhism, this is called the the, um, the transition from the Shravaka view to the Chittamatra view. Chittamatra means mind only, but it's mind only in a, a pejorative or negative sense. And, and so the reason I want to say this is that, you know, really, as I've come to understand it, whether we know it or not, 
a colossal part of the path is de-reifying, melting, de-solidifying this completely ridiculous worldview that, that matter reigns supreme, that matter is all that matters. And if you can't count, you don't count. <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't measure it, if you can't count, you don't count. And that's why, you know, psychology, spirituality, metaphysics is just categorically dismissed by hard, what uh, Dafrijan talked about, a solid type scientists, where the only thing that really matters is matter. It's a ridiculous worldview. And it causes so many problems, uh, too many to even talk about. But one of the biggest ones I wanted to mention just ever so briefly is um, what David Chalmers, the quite influential philosopher, talked about is the hard problem of consciousness, which is just this. How do you explain consciousness arising from matter? They can't and they never will because it doesn't. Um, and even though there's these incredibly sophisticated conjectures, you know, a microtubule thing in, in quantum mechanics. And I mean, it's just like unbelievable that measures um, they go to to try to reduce everything. But the hard problem of consciousness will never be solved because consciousness does not arise from matter. It's actually the other way around. And so the way to immediately solve the hard problem becomes no problem at all, is that depending on how you define it, mind, consciousness, awareness, that's the nature of reality. And so um, I'm really big into this for a lot of reasons. It's, it's colossally important on my path. Intellectually, it's super interesting to read about it, to study it. And there's some pretty sophisticated thinkers that have been riffing on this. But I wanted to just share one thing briefly, and then I'm going to go right to these questions because there's so many really good ones, is that a really interesting um, fact around what brings about transcendent experience is, you know, in the Western view, consciousness arises from brain. Brain equals mind. Uh, no, it doesn't. Gross, gross brain is correlative, correlated to, to a gross mind. It doesn't, you know, the correlation is not the same as causation. It doesn't cause consciousness. But more importantly here, what's really interesting is that it's actually a reduction in brain activity that brings about transcendent experience. Um, and so the brain, therefore, Huxley said it, Decades ago, you know, the brain is a reducing valve. The brain is a, lo a localizing shrink wrap mechanism that takes the universality of mind and zips it down into this little physical packet. <laughs> um, but what's so interesting is that <clears throat> if you really look at what's hap what happens in the world, what constitutes a lot of transcendent experience, almost always associated with not heightened brain increase, but um, lessening of brain activity, brain reduction. And so here's some interesting data on it. Um, I, I met yesterday with this guy. I'm going to bring him on an interview. And he, he just moved to town. He looked me up. He's a, a, a NASA. He's an astronaut. This guy's been amazing. He's been a fighter pilot in, in Desert Storm. He actually sat nuke, which that's the terminology I'm reading his book, where he was one of the people that sat next to the phone, ready to fight on, jump on his um, nuclear um, equipped fighter bomber in a heartbeat. And, and so he's the most amazing guy. And he's been to the bottom of the ocean. He's been um, on a number, I think at least four spacewalks. He's traveled, you know, uh, around the planet. I don't know how many countless times. He's a super interesting guy. So we had a really long, wonderful conversation. I'm reading this book and I'm, I'm definitely going to bring him on and interview him. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is a little bit this, and that is that, that pilots, when they 
go through this kind of g-force induced loss of consciousness you've seen the movies when they do the spinning thing or when they're in flight often the g-forces are so dramatic that they temporarily go unconscious and a lot of people a lot of these pilots will actually have transcendent experiences when that happens when you take psychotropic agents psychedelics and the like it doesn't increase brain activity it decreases brain activity um jill bolte taylor the, the neuroanatomist who had a total massive left hemispheric stroke when half her brain was shut off, she entered a, a really a unitary kind of mind-blowing spiritual experience. So that's another one. Sensory deprivation. There's interesting literature in, in the Greek tradition where the Greeks would actually go into caves to engage in sensory deprivation and have, have transcendent experiences there. Again, a reduction of brain activity. In Tibetan Buddhism, this is related to the Bardo Dark Retreat, where you do the same thing. You go into a completely dark environment reduce sensory stimulus, reduce brain activity, and you have these kind of transcendent experiences. Near-death experiences. Evan Alexander, the neurosurgeon who had this, countless, his brain was flatlined. I mean, he was basically dead. And he was having all these remarkable, you know, awakening spiritual transcendent experiences. And so there's more. There's the savant experiences. There's all kinds of really interesting data about how brain reduction, not brain amplification, is a correlative to spiritual experience. And so I just wanted to share a little bit about that. This is a really big topic, uh, very near and dear to my heart. My book, Dreams of Light, is, you know, a lot of it is actually about this sort of thing. So that's what came to mind today that I wanted to share with you. And you'll probably hear more about this as, as we go on because I'm thinking more and more about this kind of stuff. But in the meantime, I have to leave around two o'clock, uh, three o'clock today. So I wanted to get right to some of these really cool questions. <clears throat> And then we'll get to some of the live ones as well. So uh, not in order of priority, but kind of the way they came in. This first one is from Eris. Hi, Andrew, the interview with Ian Baker. Oh, yes, I forgot to say that. So the usual little announcement thing. I interviewed my friend Ian Baker last Friday. Andy um, gave a um, broadcast of it yesterday. We got some really interesting comments. This was an amazing interview, and not, not because of me, but because of the topic. And because of Ian, he's an amazing guy. I know him. I, I've met him in London. I was part of an exhibit he did. Um, I, I met him in Boulder. Um, and I'm going to actually invite him. I talked already behind the scenes with him. I'm going to invite him into the into the community to actually do his presentation on these hidden lands, the Bayo. Because in our conversation, we weren't able to show the slides, the images of his journey into these lands. So. Um, if you're a nightclub member, check it out. If you're not, you can, you know, you get the first 30 minutes of it. It's pretty amazing stuff. So a couple of questions came in around that. But in terms, you know, retrofitting, in terms of what I often do when I start, the big announcement for this week is we've finally started to promote, advertise two pretty big programs um, for me. You know, the first one is, and Andy will put up the links in the in that column. It's a deep dive, my annual deep dive lucid dreaming dream yoga program. We're going to do this over two, three day weekends. The dates are in the link. Nightclub members get a colossal discount on this. This is by far my deepest dive into the nocturnal stuff every year. Um, I've done this, this particular event. I've done it live three times in Sedona. This year we're doing it online for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's going to work great because we have a month, about a month between each two of the three day weekends, all the stuff is recorded and there'll be a really extended time to really work with some of these practices. So this is by far my favorite best program 
related to the nocturnal meditations. The other one is actually what I previously had done in Sedona. Some of you have been there, this totally magical power spot. In fact, similar to kind of the Bayle hidden land principle. When you go down there, if you've ever been there, there's definitely something going on down there. <laughs> the landscape is unbelievably powerful. So it in itself has this kind of sacred space quality. This program at the end of October, I think, is a, a basically a critique of the, it's a med meditation retreat, critique of the mindfulness thing, somewhat based on this book I'm writing, and then uh, an exploration of a handful of really powerful post-mindfulness meditation practices. So if you're interested, that kind of stuff will be clicked into the chat column there. So in relation to Eris's question, the interview with Ian Baker was really inspiring. Ian talked about sacred places with special energies. And when he practiced there, what he would normally do on one year was now a day a week much faster. Can you talk about these sacred places? How can I bring these sacred places into my here and now? Well, I can talk about them. And I will also refer you, Eris, to other resources, both my own and others. Um, this principle of sacred places I talked about it really, excuse me, in, in some length with my dear friend um, Bob Thurman when we did the Tantric Pure Land program. That's still available. So Tantric Pure Lands are very close to, to the hidden land principle, to the sacred place principle. So that's one place you can go to, to learn more about it. Um, there's also a good literature on this. Ian's book itself, uh, The Heart of the World, a uh, book um, by Jonathan Controllo Taye called Sacred Ground, texts on geomancy, um, feng shui. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that riffs on this. Pilgrimage texts, there's a, a large literature based on that. But, you know, I don't really want to reiterate everything that Ian said about this because I thought he did a, a pretty spanking good job. But I can say a couple of things about um, these places and like where the power comes from, right? So the power of these sacred lands, and they're different from, from um, pilgrimage sites to one extent. And Ian and I talk about it. So going to Pemaku, the, the principal um, bay or hidden land that we talked about, it's similar, but it's not the same as like going to Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha attained his enlightenment. I've been there. It is an extraordinarily powerful place. And the power of these, of these two, they're somewhat similar, but they're not the same. So when you go to a, a sacred place, so when you say sacred places, Eris, I'm not sure if you're meaning like kind of, so to speak, generic sacred power spots or more of these more esoteric bales. So I'll talk a little bit about both. When you go to traditional sacred places, like um, the four classic sites, of, of the Buddha's life, Lumbini, um, Krishnagar, um, Bodh Gaya, um, you know, the, the places that marked the key experiences of his life, and other sacred places, other, other pilgrimage spots. A large part of what brings these about is the power of the blessing of the event that took place and the, and the masters that were there, because it's super interesting. Again, this ties into what I was saying at the beginning, the world is not made of matter, the world is made of mind. And so at the highest levels, eighth Bhumi levels, if that means anything to you, the minds of these masters actually interpenetrates, mixes literally with the land, literally. Um, because that level of recognition, they realize mind is not separate from this so-called externality. It's just not. And so when great beings enter these places, 
even by their mere presence, they perfume, they impregnate, they stamp that land with their awareness. And so therefore the power comes from that. Uh, also, some of these sacred places are conjoined with these vital power spots. And just like there are vital power spots in our body, um, uh, endocrine centers in Western languaging, chakra centers in, in Eastern languaging, just like there are power spots within our body, there are also power spots within the body of the planet. And so there are inherently more powerful spots in nature, period. And so the bales become, these other sacred places become, I think, even more interesting because they, they then become imbued with an elemental quality. So there's a particular power in, in the landscape itself that heightens, because again, there's no difference between inner and outer. And that's, that's why when we go to these places, the outer can profoundly affect the inner because they're not separate. And so you may have experienced this. You go into a cathedral or really, you know, even a more conventional sacred space, it feels a whole lot different than when you go to a bar or some seedy environment, which takes you down. These environments lift you up. So um, there's a ton to say here, Eris. You know, the, the most important thing, honestly, was your second question. How can I bring that sacred space into my here and now? Well relative and absolute answers to this. One um, on a relative level is cl literally clean up the environment physically, like in um, Barry and others who are, are longtime Tibetan Buddhists, just before the Tibetan New Year, Losar, there's always a period of time where everybody is invited to, and this is always so painful to me, because my, my study is just a total disaster, <laughs> is to just clean everything up physically, clean up the whole environment, notice how that lifts you up so that's that's relative conventional level just clean up the pad relatively speaking you can also do what's called a lasang which is a smoke offering purification um, lots to say about that when i do my programs we we often do lasangs as a way to kind of bless invoke these energetics that come down to infuse that land that space um but on a more absolute level really two things here. One is practicing what Ian did refer to several times, Daknam, which is Tibetan for pure perception. It's actually a tantric vow, is, to, is part of tantric practice, is to see the world as perfectly pure, as already sacred, because it's a fake it till you make it event. It is that way. So you actually practice seeing the world as, as the body of um, perfection, all the speech is mantra, all thought is the play of the deity. And so that practice actually starts to lift you up because it's in resonance with the way things really are. And then lastly, um, Eris, one thing I, I really highly recommend, obviously, and I talked about this with, with Ian as well, is through meditation, right? Because the, the esoteric, you talked about outer, inner, secret, and very secret levels, Yangsang, very secret levels of, of hidden lands or Baal. Well, when I first read about this stuff, I immediately flashed on, and I shared this with the end, that the ultimate um, hidden land is actually hidden within the present moment. So in other words, entering into what I talked about with him as the fourth moment, the moment that transcends past, present, and future, that my friend uh, Lama Surya Das very playfully refers to as Buddha standard time. <laughs> Buddha standard time because it doesn't abide by, abide by time. 
not constrained by past, um, future, or present. And so only through the conduit of the present moment can you enter the timeless fourth moment, which colloquially you can express and feel through things like flow states, the zone, that kind of thing. But this is really, this is where the, this principle ties into tantric pure land. And what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about is the pure land of the present moment. That literally, if you just enter the timeless now, you will find this sacred quality always already forever present. In fact, that's all there really is. We are the ones that transform the sacred into the profane with the veils of our perception, with the veils of our ignorance. And so the world, if we just leave it alone or see it just the way it is, it is sacred. Um, perfect purity, it's called threefold purity, pure perception, sacred world, sacred outlook. These are actually practices in, in um, Buddhism. And so that really, to me, Eris, is the most important thing, is to purify the lenses of your own heart-mind, realize that the hidden land is um, opens for you as you open to it. So this is the inner rendering of what's called opening the, the veil, opening the hidden land. You open it by opening the aperture of your awareness and realize, oh my gosh, everything is already sacred and perfectly pure right here, right now. So to support this, in addition to what I said on, on a more so-called advanced esoteric level, studied the teachings on the great perfection, Dzogchen, right? Perfect purity. That teaching is all about this sort of thing. So um, yeah, it, I, I thought what Ian said was pretty cool. So there's a couple other things here. This one, we got a little bit of traction on this as well. Something that Ian did say that was a little bit controversial. Um, so, and here's two questions that relate to it from Barry. Make sure to ask Andrew about the features of Sukhavati, no women. <laughs> I, I didn't wanna call him on that, but I, I really, maybe I'll ask him behind the scenes, like Ian, where did you get that? Um, so anyway, because that's not in the, all, any of the sutras I've read. Um, Bob Thurman, when I did the program with him, he never mentioned it once. So I think, and again, I have to ask Ian, what he was referring to there. It's not that there's no women allowed in Sukhavati. There's also no men allowed. There's no gender in Sukhavati. And it's one of the reasons, interestingly enough, this is my riff on it, while, why they talk about Sukhavati as being free from suffering. Well, it's interesting. You know, passion, the translation of passion is literally etymologically suffering. The passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. So on one level, there's no suffering, on one level, there's no suffering in Sukhavati because there's no passion, because there's no gender. So I, I'm not sure where Ian got that because I, I, I have read the sutras um, and it's not mentioned in the sutras, but what they do say is, yes, there's no men, there's no women, but there's also no men, there's no gender. So I'm not sure where he got that. I'll have to ask him where that came from because um, that's not my experience and, and Bob, who has studied this a lot longer than me, also, he didn't say that. So Dottie has a similar type of thing. I was mesmerized by Ian's interview. I felt a powerful response to it. It was mostly a diffuse and a feeling response rather than conceptual. Cool. It spoke to so much of what I've always felt was true. However, I have a specific question. The information about women not being able to enter Amitabha's pure land, again, that's not true. I, I, don't, I don't know where he got that. Um, without becoming a man. I mean, that, yeah, this is the whole, read um, Rita Gross's really seminal book, Buddhism After Patriarchy. 
there's unfortunately in, in all the wisdom traditions, there's there's still this incredible stain of the whole patriarchal agenda. It, it there's so much stuff to talk about here, and it's all BS. It's just ridiculous in my opinion. Um, so in order to the very best of my understanding, and if somebody out there knows more and can correct me on it, I will be corrected, but I've never heard this. You, you know, these pure lands are not based on these kinds of visa re requirements. You know, you have to be a man to be reborn there. No way. It just makes no sense whatsoever to me. This is the patriarchal state interpretation. In other words, some individual guy some, somewhere, and this happens like all the time just kind of came up with this little thing and, and somebody latched onto it and propagated it. And, and you know, it's not in the original text. Please help me understand the other options. Well, you, you can go to Amitabha's Pure Land. You know, don't worry about that. All the other stuff, you know, Uddiyana Shambhala, that's a huge topic. Um, I probably don't want to go there right now. And also how this relates to having taken the Bodhisattva vow. Okay, I can't say something about that because this is a common question, Dottie, and it's a good one. The Bodhisattva vow we take, you know, to remain in samsara until all sentient beings are liberated. Well, how do you maintain your Bodhisattva vow when you're making aspirations to FedEx your consciousness after death into a pure land? Doesn't that violate your pure land, your contract vows? I mean, your uh, Bodhisattva vows? Well, no, it doesn't because you want to go there because it's like going to Harvard instead of staying back in kindergarten. You know, you're in an environment that's so conducive to awakening that your evolution, your development is rocket fast. And so therefore you can get your PhD, so to speak, in spirituality, you can wake up, you can attain awakening and you have then more so much, so much more power efficacy to help people. So by going to these places, it's like going into retreat in order to advance. So you go there so that you can, so to speak, come back and be of so much more benefit. So you're not, you're not reneging on your Bodhisattva vow. You're actually actualizing it faster. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. And so that was that. And then again, if anybody's here and wants to follow up on these, more than welcome. So and I'll get to you in a second, my friend. I wanted to ping off a couple more. Um, John from last week, most likely I will not be able to attend. Uh, I'll answer it anyway. To be considered lucid, this is a dreaming question. Is it necessary that the words I am dreaming or I am awake or this is a dream come up? Uh, no, not necessarily, not at all. In the past year, my clarity and recall of dreams has increased exponentially. Good for you, that's awesome. There's a strong sense of a lasting awareness of the dreams. When I get up in the morning, they often just seem like previous waking life moments. Yeah, for me too, actually. On occasion, the phrase, I am dreaming occurs. And this, I read this, um, John, it wasn't clear to me. Um, I am dreaming, that phrase occurs to you when you've woken up and you're looking back. That's kind of what I think you're saying. So you're talking about what's happening in life or you're talking about what's happening when you're actually in the dream. I think it's from what I can intuit what's happening in life. And then of course the following experience has a specific equality associated with it. I'm not sure what the referent is here associated with what. Um, so that's not clear to me, John. If you're here, raise your hand, come on. Maybe you can clarify this and help me out. 
So because of that, the rest of your question, my friend, um, is a little bit vague to me. So John, if you're on and want to come in, raise your hand and, and clarify what you're asking, I'm happy to run with it. But you know, you do not have to say, this is a dream, I'm a dreaming, whatever, to attain lucidity. Um, that's a one powerful way to practice what's called dreaming initiated lucid dreaming is in fact by working with these um, kind of maxims, aphorisms, statements, slogans, but it's not necessary. So that answers what could be the core of your question. And again, if you're here and want to come on, we can chat about it. Okay. From Rahim, I would like to do a simple practice in my dreams that would create merit to benefit others. Very cool. And of course, most important, dedicate the merit. Yeah, you can do that. Um, even before I continue further with your question, Rahim, if you're lucid in the dream and have this level of stability and lucidity, you can dedicate the merit of what you do with your lucid dreaming dream yoga practice for the benefit of beings. Absolutely, positively. Great thing to do. I have read or heard from you that dreams can produce, yeah, this comes from the Tantras. So I did not say, I did not make this up. Um, Namkai Norba Rinpoche quoting the Tantras says that the practices that we do in the dream state can be up to nine times more um, efficacious, beneficial, because you're working with more subtle dimensions of, of being. Again, you're more deeply into the nature of mind, and that's why the effects are more um, transformative. What practice would I recommend? Uh, okay, Rahim, if you're here, that would help me recommend for what? For doing greater benefit to others is, is I guess, what I'm hearing. Um, I'm pretty sure I can be lucid for a short time without waking up. So what practice would I recommend? Well, Rahim, I would recommend a number of different practices depending on, on the strength and stability of your lucidity. So if your lucidity is really strong, and you're doing, and it's one reason we have we started this track on the on the nine stages of dream yoga. You can do any one of those tracks that resonates with you or that you have enough stability for. And then this will benefit others in a number of ways. One, like you alluded to, is if you have the, the stability, the wherewithal to actually dedicate the merit of what you've done in your nocturnal practice for others, that's great. Here's the other kicker. If you, if you can't remember to do that, well, guess what? You're gonna wake up in the morning. And you can say it first thing you wake up, I dedicate the merit of whatever benefit I've accomplished this night, whether I even am aware of it or not, for the benefit of all beings. And again, similar to what I was starting at the outset, because the world is not made of matter and the world is made, is made of mind. Bob Thurman talks a lot about this puppy. We think that what we dedicate and, and make aspirations for and the practices we do, they're ineffectual because I've got this wispy thing called mind and I'm sending out this aspiration against this monolithic material universe. Well, with that view, yes, what you see, think, do, pray is meaningless, right? But that's not the way reality is. If reality is of the nature of mind and, and it, your mind is deeply inextricably connected to that, what you do in here affects out there because fundamentally there is no in here or out there, right? So therefore completely overthrowing this ridiculous fallacious notion of materialism is super important. It empowers all these sorts of things. So if you don't have lucidity at night, Rahim, wake up in the morning, even if you didn't have a lucid dream and say, I dedicate, you know, in your own language, unless you have a formal liturgy, you know, whatever benefit or merit I've accumulated during this night, whether I know it or not, may I dedicate for the benefit of all sentient beings. 
The other reason this help can be a benefit for you is it will obviously start to work with you during the day. So that's the whole point on one level. These nocturnal practices have bidirectional tentacles. They will work. They will start to affect you during your day. And then that type of lucidity, lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. Then that naturally spontaneously starts to benefit others because you're waking up. So really the most important thing here, my friend, is just maintaining this aspiration before you go to sleep. Set the aspiration. This is one of the secret ingredients, remember, the magic induction methods, that before you go to sleep, perfume your aspiration, perfume your night. May I attain lucidity this night. May I wake up in my dreams for the benefit of all sentient beings. That actually can facilitate, catalyze lucidity itself. So you frame it that way on the front end. You frame it when you wake up in the morning saying, whatever merit I have accumulated last night, may that be dedicated for all beings. So you make the aspiration, you make the dedication. And then that's super helpful, whether you know it or not, it's super helpful. So um, in terms of the practices, on one level, you know, I have to be a little careful when I say this, it doesn't really matter, but on one level, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're doing a practice that's that's working with your own heart mind that's helping you wake up doesn't matter what that practice is if you dedicate that that has a lot of benefit to others and also benefit to you okay so one more from marie and then i'll get um uh ed's question how would you answer this question from a precocious five-year-old granddaughter these kind of questions always kind of freak me out because i don't have kids but anyway, this precocious five-year-old says, does my brain tell me what to do? <laughs> That's really precocious. That's great. Maybe she's a tulku or he's a tulku. Oh yeah, she, uh, granddaughter. Oh, Marie, these are sweet questions, aren't they? And, and, and what a, an adorable five-year-old, right? First of all, give her a big hug and say, what a great question. Isn't that amazing? And then what you could say, again, you have to just speak from your own heart at, her, at a level that speaks to her, is you might, you might tell her, so you could say on one level, your brain does tell me what to do because that's just kind of the way the brain works. But then what you could say based on this new information, then you could tell her, but you know, dear, the brain is not the whole story. And again, this is where you have to be, you have to use your sensitivity so she doesn't just like freak out and get too bug-eyed. <laughs> This is, this is what defines skillful means, is meeting people, including children, where they're at, not where you're at. And so that's why I, I say this with some reservation, because I'm not a parent, let alone a grandparent. And so this is one of the challenges of, of translation. You are now a cultural translator. So I can give you some general guidelines, but really, for me, Marie, it's just the sensitivity of opening up to where she is what you feel she's capable of hearing and then expressing your truth at a level that you think will resonate with hers um and because i don't you know uh, because i don't have this type of experience in my own life i can only speak to it somewhat theoretically and i don't like really doing that um, i try to be as practical as i can if, if there's anybody else out there that has kids and has this kind of precocious um child and they have questions like that, I'm more than willing to put you on and you can share something. But I think it's just a matter of connecting to where they are and maybe saying something, you know, does my brain tell me what to do? You can say, you, you can tell her, yes, on one level it does, dear. 
but it's more than that. And then from there, then you can start to see what she might be available for. Sometimes children have tremendous wisdom and you'd be surprised if you told her, well, you know, honey, there are some people who think that everything isn't just related to the brain. And then you can kind of dance from there. So maybe within those guidelines, Marie, you can find your own way. Um, I'm always cautious um, giving advice in an area where I really don't have a tremendous amount of personal experience. Okay. All right, Ed, are you there, my friend? Is Ed there with his hand up? I am indeed. I, you know, <laughs> hey guys. Um, so I'll speak to that quest. The the kid. I've had a passel of kids, so and I have grandkids. Oh, cool. You're all over the place. So what I would usually say is, you know, what you what your brain does is translate what you feel in here, oh, what you feel inside, and it just puts words for it. You know, and, yeah, it just keeps them using their words, but stay in, t in touch with what they feel. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Yeah, no, that's that's good. But so the reason I raised my hand, then I took it down, is because everybody's questions were about Ian Baker, and that was what mine was too. Oh, um, far away, far I, away. I loved it. I was in my garden listening, you know, to this beautiful nature talk, and I'm just, I'm in my own bale right there in the garden, and and then he gets to this part about you know the women, and it's like spiritual bypass. He even said. And I was like, whoa, you know, he also mentioned, uh, yeah, merit, you know, he said he was, he was likening it to um, indulgences, right, in the uh, medieval times with the Christian, the Catholic indulgences, you could buy your way out of purgatory, and if you gave enough money. And so I'm, I'm really interested to follow up on that and to find out where that comes from, because it sounds like there's, there's some source somewhere where that whole notion uh, is coming from. Which notion are you talking about? Like the accumulation of this kind of almost um, like merit? Yeah, the merit and the spirit, you know, acting as if it's spiritual bypass that you can't really, um, well, the way you're doing it is through this physical way of material way of getting money and, and, and you know, merit and all that stuff. And then uh, the women thing, you know, it's just. So the women thing, that's probably all. I've already said around that. It's not in the sutras. I know I, I personally have never come across a Pure Land text that mentions that. So I think maybe, again, I'm just guessing it was this notion that, it, again, it's just there's no gender, period. There's no mm. men or women. Mm. So in that sense, it's kind of ultimate liminality. But, you know, the merit thing, um, yeah, this is a really big, super important topic. You know, a lot to say here. I don't know if you took the Pure Land program with Bob, but I addressed that, I think, in the first weekend, where yeah. there are a number of ways um, to, a little bit to, to deal with this merit thing. On a, on a highly provisional level, again, marriage is a multivalent principle. It, you, you can apply it across a, a vast spectrum. And so on one level, making recitations, making offerings, doing physical gestures kind of like you know you're creating or collecting these merit badges or these merit credits that's a, a very entry-level provisional and therefore provisionally valid way to look at it that there is some accumulation of uh, literally merit that's what's taking place through these kind of mechanistic ways but at the more refined levels is merit becomes more and more refined 
it becomes more and more subtle. And um, therefore, merit can be most efficaciously, most powerfully transmitted through, in fact, what we do with our own mind and heart, through our intentionality, through you know magnifying one of the things you can do with a mind that you can't do at um, causal vehicle levels is instead of just giving away your car physically or giving away your house physically, which is a beautiful, fantastic thing to do. You can visualize through generation stage practices. You can amplify that. That's, this is, as you know, the principle of mandala offering. That's what mandala offering does. It's basically a colossal accumulation of merit using the powers of the mind that amplifies it. Because, you know, as you know, as, as well I do, brain can't really tell the difference between what's imagined and what's experienced. Mm -hmm. And on a cosmological sense, it's even more so. And so therefore, this is the, the genius of Mandela offering the principle behind it. By engaging in this vast amplification that you're not just giving away your car, you're giving away everything. You're giving away the universe. That has a proportional level of efficacy because it's amplified by the power of the mind. So um, we could, if you have another question around that, I'm happy to dance with you a little bit on it. Merit, one thing I wanted to say, this is a very subtle topic. And, and to share one story with you, when I did my three-year retreat, um, at the end of my three-year retreat, Minji Rinpoche came in. He was there. He came in to give us a talk. And I, for one, I can't speak of my other retreats, but I think they were pretty similar to me. Here we are feeling we're somewhat highfalutin graduates of this super long training. And I thought he was going to come in and talk to us about, you know, super esoteric things like, you know, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, all these interviews. He came in, he totally busted at least my chops. He spent the whole time talking about merit. It was like, on one level, there was such a letdown. On another level, there was a massive teachable moment. And then he went through this really elegant riff on understanding what's actually taking place with the merit principle and how it has these multivalent applications from doing circumambulations around the Torah, offering lights, offering candles, offering, but fundamentally, you know, even more refined than that is the actual spirit of offering itself. And so to, to really study this stuff is super important because marriage is just, it's not just isn't the right word. Marriage is a form of karma. It's karma with intentionality. So when mm -hmm. you talk about marriage, you're talking about karma. And karma creates individual and collective world systems. And so when you can join merit, you put it in the rubric, the framework of karma, then you realize, well, we're talking about something super powerful. And just again, to show you how big a deal it is, whether we know it or not, everybody listening right now, we are on the first of the five paths leading to awakening. It's called the path of accumulation. We are on that path, whether we know it or not. What are we accumulating? Two things, mostly merit. Secondary, I wouldn't say secondarily, but secondly, wisdom. Merit is the currency that transforms into wisdom. Merit is the currency that transforms into landscape. That's how lands literally are created. Right now, we're experiencing a co-creative world brought about by our instructions. When you create a pure land or go to a pure land, merit is what gets you there. So I'll pause for a second to see if any of this lands with you, or if you want to take this another direction. Um, but because the topic is so big, I want to make sure I'm hitting your sweet spot. Yeah, no, you know, I, 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 you know, I get that, and it it makes perfect sense to me, and I, you know, I participate. 
I, I'm, we need to be creating merit. This world really needs some right about now. Um, but I was just, I didn't quite, I didn't quite understand where um, Ian Baker was coming from. You know, like that, that he put that in the same sentence as a merit being spiritual bypass. It was only, like, and he had these three or four lines in a row about the women thing, and then it was like we're we're creating. We're getting to the halfway house of enlightenment because we've paid our dues and then we get to get enlightened. And so yep. that whole thing, that's where, you know, so I'd like to, you know, I want to know the follow up to that. I just want to know where did that come from? Yeah, you know, because I, I have not listened to it since I recorded it with him. And often when I when I'm doing these things, he's ripping away. I'm taking some notes about where to go. So I'm not 100 yeah. percent everything he does. And also I'm old. A little careful to put words into his mouth all the more reason to bring him back to actually have him on and do a full presentation on this topic and then we can ask him these questions point that'd be great, so great. perfect thank you thank you <laughs> great. so uh, a couple more came in oh yeah jill what do you think of the book the realm of shambhala by yeah campo jumbo Lodo. i know him Control Rinpoche, yeah, I know him. Um, your conversation with Ian Baker reminded me a lot of this book. I haven't read it yet, Jill. I know him. I, I attended some of his teachings on the Kala Chakra. Um, it's on my list of like, you know, if I look on my to-do read, I could maybe get that to that book in 10 years. <laughs> Just kidding, sort of. It's on my list to get because there's not much written about the realm of Shambhala. Um, and he's, I met him and I, I attended some teachings with him. I thought he was a cool guy. So unfortunately I can't speak with it because I haven't read it yet. So send it to me, I'll read it. <laughs> and then I'll let you know what I think. But anybody really, especially at his level that talks about Shambhala, I'm, I'm interested in reading what he has to say. So you jog my memory that I should order this book. From Steve, I think the power energy of the sacred places can be found in the wild places if we look for it, absolutely, Steve, 100%. This is what Tom J talked about as Drala principle. Um, that it's another way to talk about Drala literally means beyond the enemy, beyond the enemy of, of the profane, beyond the enemy of, of duality, ego. Um, and so Tom J talked, speaking of Shamala, talked a ton about um, these wild places. That's one reason I like to do retreats at Sedona or these other magical landscapes that, that have this profound elemental quality. And then you can engage in practices like draw the principal walks and, and such that are actually designed to evoke heightened relationship with the environment, where in fact, you simply open to the fact that that, that sacredness and purity is there. And so I'll finish the rest of your question here, Steve, but fundamentally it goes even farther than that because we use these um, sacred wilderness places initially provisionally we use nature of uh, literal reality uh, um, the natural world to work with the natural state of the mind but then fundamentally we want to go even further and this is why in tantric buddhism you have these you know seemingly outrageous images of where uh, in these skull cups of transformation, you, you, you accrete the most repulsive elements of, of humanity. 
and the idea there is to actually try you know, to evoke to realize that even in what we conventionally designate as the most repugnant, impure, in its essence, there is actually sacredness even there. So that's really important because otherwise that becomes a type of spiritual bypass where you just want to go to these feel-good places. Well, you know, your happy place, your feel-good place, your spiritual place, important at first, but not if you make that your only place. Then that becomes spiritual bypass, a serious trap. But I totally agree with what you're saying. Back to you, when we find these spots, we can bring that energy out by seeking it out and blending it and blending with it. Yes, totally agree. I like to do Tai Chi in odd natural spaces like nature centers. Well, I don't think it's odd to do it, my friend. I think it's actually the way to go. Um, if you look at where many of the world's great uh, religious masters gain their insights, Buddha next to a river underneath a tree, um, Muhammad, you know, Christ in the desert, Muhammad in a cave, I believe. A lot of these profound insights occurred in natural environments. And so one of the things I recommend, which you seem to be doing is, my friend David Lawyer writes about this beautifully. Oh, look at that, that's great. Thanks for the image. Practice more outside. Nature of mind deficit disorder. Mix your mind with the natural environment. Practice outside as much as you possibly can. So um, good for you, my friend, if that is of some resonance with you. Um, I simply encourage you to do more of it. So we got a couple more here. Okay, so these questions are so good. Um, so Lisa, if you're here, dear, you had a really long question. And as you put at the very end of it, um, you say here, if you couldn't decipher it, I will try to be on the meeting. If you're here, um, I'm gonna, I'd like to bring you front and center because I couldn't decipher some of it. Uh, so okay. if you are here, you are here? Yes, I'm here. Oh, good. Perfect. So uh, ask away. Well, um, this time I kept it. Um, and interestingly, I had um, a talk of Alan Wallace today, and he was referring to uh, exactly the same thing. Um, and it was about... Um, how we, we can tell truth. And um, my, my opinion was that um, maybe we, um, you know, in, in Buddhism and in these spiritual paths uh, from the blue um, uh, state, stage, uh, it's always about final truth. So you should wait before you go further. Define for people the blue stage because they they probably don't know Karl Beck's cartography. Well, it's it's the the stage uh, where it is about fundamentalism, be it religious fundamentalism or any of those that came before our um, uh, uh, Western uh, scientific stage and and um, uh, it's about finding final truth. And some God tells the truth, right? Great, thanks for that. That's uh, just short. And I thought um, when we interact with reality, it might even be when we come from a really um, quantum uh, physics uh, approach that we actually, that it's not like we, we get 
closer to reality with each um, uh, change of consciousness and, and stage, but we actually create, co-create uh, different worlds. And when we look at them from a very dense and ego uh, approach, it might actually be more dense Correct. in a co-creative. Um, and as you always say, the ego wants this or that. My, my, my first approach was, aren't we reifying the, the ego by doing that, right? So, but uh, it led me to these uh, further thoughts. And today, Alan Wallace was referring to a quantum physicist and he was referring to some uh, string theory. And he said that actually uh, physical laws are different in different um, worlds. And it, it's about the consciousness which uh, looks at that world uh, and co-creates these different, even on a, on a physical law um, level, different worlds. Yeah, I mean, what a fantastic question. And, and Alan is, is really wonderfully <clears throat> equipped to talk about this way of thinking. So a couple of things come to mind. First of all, I completely agree. <clears throat> and again, Dreams of Light, there's a lot of material on this where it's what, in my languaging, it's what I call ontic plasticity. That the world, and Ken Wilber writes about this beautifully. Uh, so many really gifted people write about this beautifully. That based on state structure levels of development, predispositions, all these factors, we don't grow into a world, we grow with the world, we co-create it. And so therefore, this is an extremely powerful thing to understand. It also ties into what I said at the outset. You know, the illusion that we're growing into a world is based on materialism. The reality that we're growing with a world as the world is more idealistic. You know, the world is made of mind. And so therefore, what we even think of as world, matter itself is just the materialistic way is a provisionally valid but very limited way of looking at the world that is largely dictated by egoic dimensions of, of evolution. And so what is so elegant about this is it brings about a tremendous sense of empathy, compassion, understanding about how it is that people co-create different realities. The animal experiment comes into play here. You know, that if you gathered a hundred different animals and we all brought them into this room and I, I do this experiment as a thought experiment and we all held up this thing and then we ask every one of these animals to explain what they thought, you'd get a hundred different descriptions of what we call glass. Well, what's the real reality? That's a, the wrong question because it depends on the, the constructs and the, the structure and all these other factors of the observer. So the most important thing for me and a really good question here is just that, that it brings about a sense of understanding, compassion, empathy, that people act, behave based on their own particular worldviews, based on the structures they bring to that world. But there isn't an endless sliding scale. So that's one thing I would contest. That's, you know, this idea of radical relativism, postmodern assertion. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean that. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad to hear that because that's a little bit what I was picking up. And, and that that's just, so there no. is, there is some reduction that it isn't fundamentally irreducibly sliding. Fundamentally, you do, so to speak, bottom out into the bottomless, into reality, at least according to the world wisdom traditions. There is this thing called foundational reality. From that groundless ground, 
then you can see, in fact, how the relative expressions arise. So I'll pause there to see if that's landing with you. Um, so I think the question also, like many others, can be addressed from a more relative and absolute perspective. But that's what comes to mind. Well, I would say, um, I, I, I thought you would think it's POMO. It's not POMO. Uh, you know, it's not postmodern. It's not relativistic postmodern, what I mean. Yeah. I think from an uh, from, uh, integral pers perspective, uh, we always um, define uh, values depending on context and goal, right? So it's not relativistic and anything goes like. Correct, yes. Yeah. We're, okay. we're definitely on the same page as that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, I think about this fu fundamental truth that is what I question. That there is such a thing? Yeah, uh, I think we, there, is, there is some, but I don't think that humans can uh, finally perceive it. Well, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a personal um, philosophical stance. And if that works for you, that's fine. Um, I'm not gonna contest that. And who's to say with ultimate authority that someone has his ultimate omniscience? I mean, I'm certainly in no position to address that. But what I can say, that is, is some interest is there does seem to be just like there's a consensual reality in this materialistic way, even cross-culturally, there does seem to be a consensus, especially in the non-dual traditions about what the Buddhists would call shunyaka, absolute truth. And so again, your, your bias may, or your, your view may not resonate that way. I can tell you one thing for sure, what we know is, is mind, ego, self, absolutely positively, that will never know that because there's always a dualistic level of even knowing taking place there. So what I fall into here, and this is such a beautiful, deep, elegant question, Lisa, that, oh my gosh, we have an entire weekend on this, is that on, another, on the deepest levels, we're talking about the transformation of knowledge to wisdom into true gnosis, where you're no longer even knowing in a conventional sense, where it's tat tvam asi, thou art that, you know, in this deep embodied um, Gnostic sense. And, and so therefore that type of absolute truth, I mean, the wisdom traditions say there is that, and then it, in I fact, know. is an invitation for us to find it. And yeah. so whether we can test it or not, that's the question. Uh, may, I, may I say one sentence? Totally. Uh, yeah. Totally. Uh, I think uh, this is a blue approach, right? The absolute truth. Not they necessarily. Don't, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't agree. Yeah, I, know, I know you don't think so, but I think so. And I think when we look, um, you know, uh, the, the, the one who is the observer, and creates these different levels of density or, or reality. This is the final not known for me. Who is the, the final one who is not to find? The one who, who um, creates, who co-creates these realities because- You're, you're, you're he, saying that that can't be found? Yeah. Yeah, see, I don't agree. Yeah. And uh, do you know Stephen Wolinski? I do, yeah. Yeah. Um, I read him many years ago and uh, his quantum approach. And he said that each uh, observation needs a different observer. It's all context dependent. That's, what, that's called non-contextual realism. Yes, exactly. So, yes. And that is probably what I mean, and that is, yeah, but still, but see, there still, is no final answer to that. Yeah, I don't agree with Stephen. And, and, and I think, you know, this, this very slippery, dangerous 
And this is where I have a little bit, it'd be very interesting to actually talk to Alan about this. We, we, it's very easy to kind of default into um, the overt or covert supremacy of, of even things like the quantum physicists. These are incredibly sophisticated thinkers. But in my estimation, you know, they're still held in overt or covert levels of materialistic views. So this is, I, I have to let this question go, dear, because I have to run. It's three o'clock. Yeah, okay. This is such a great. Here's the question. Here's the, the book I might recommend for you. And you probably already read it. Um, is uh, Integral uh, Spirituality. Have you read Ken Wilber's Integral Spirituality? Read the latter chapters of that book again. Um, and again, this is, this is one of the great questions ever since Kant, even before. This is one of the great philosophical, religious, spiritual, pre-modern, post-modern, post-postmodern questions. We're not going to resolve it in 10 minutes of conversation, but it's a beautiful one. I think it's elegant and you bring a tremendous skill set to it. But I, uh, I simply have a slightly different view whether mine is correct or yours, who knows? To me, it's just- I don't know. I don't know yeah. if mine is correct. Exactly. I mean, on a level for me, it's it's celebrating also what Zan talks about is don't know mind. Resting in the power of an open question, resting in the mystery, yeah. resting in what Dr. Yijang called divine ignorance. I mean, that could be the point because I, I totally hear you- yes, when that you is say, what I mean. I totally hear you when you say that the very search for truth in, in absolutism is itself a form of blue. I think that is correct. But with that said, I still do think, um, and actually I wouldn't even say think, it's from my experience, that there is something called reality, that there is an absolute truth. The minute you append any label to it, you're screwed. But I think there, um, the blue quality, I see what you're saying. I just do think and believe through my experience and study that there is something that can't be used um, on earth revealed that is in fact the groundless ground of the absolute. So I gotta let it go for there. I gotta run, sorry everybody. I don't, I, I don't doubt any, any experience, of course. Experience is absolute uh, and undoubtable. So, yes, yeah. yeah. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Thanks everybody, sorry Thank to run. I didn't get to all of them today, but I have to rush off to another appointment. I apologize. Um, stick with us. There's more stuff coming up. Usually I don't have to run quite this quickly, but um, I got to do what I got to do. So thanks, Andy. Thanks, everybody. Stick around, um, not today, but for other events coming up and uh, see you around town, so to speak. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hope you have a good round. Bye. Oh, bye. 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 Who am I? <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? Excuse me. Um, is it okay if I have a question regarding to the technicalities of the website? Uh, Ty, there's, we're doing a support forum tomorrow. I could send you a, an email or a direct message with that link. That would be the best time to, to chat support. Oh, stuff. oh, great. Oh, perfect. Thank you very much for that. Because I was just really wondering about the, the thing on the website. I was unable to get through uh, I mean, like after a week or something like that. No problem. But thanks for that. I'm, I'm going to be right, right back tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.